Tonight, we are looking at the book of Acts. We, we've been doing a series in Mark's Gospel. Uh, that will continue next week. But we're taking a one-off uh, look at a certain moment in the book of Acts. And I don't know how much you guys know about the book of Acts, but essentially it's this incredibly exciting story of the first generation of disciples, the first generation of people who follow Christ. Some of them literally walked with him. They did their lives with him. They were convinced that he was the Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. Uh, they saw him die on the cross, three days later be resurrected, and then they gave their lives um, to, to take this message, to take the message of who Christ is to the, to the, the known world, so across the Roman Empire, across Europe and parts of Asia. And then along the way, hundreds, thousands of people start to follow Christ, and they start to announce the gospel in different cities, and whole cities are transformed such that over a kind of couple of hundred years, few hundred years, uh, much of the, uh, the Roman world is exposed to the gospel. And, and thousands of people become Christians. And um, we're looking at Acts chapter 17. We're looking at Paul's missionary uh, visit to the, to the city of Athens. You might think, well, what does, on earth does Athens have to say to us? Well, in one sense, actually, it's incredibly relevant for us because Athens is, is in many ways the London of the, of, the, of the kind of ancient world in the sense that it's a cultural capital. It's a hugely influential city. Um, you know, we say like kind of what starts in London percolates around the rest of the world. Absolutely the case in Athens that what starts in Athens then uh, went through to at least parts of Greece, if not um, the rest, much of the Roman Empire, etc. Obviously, today, we still listen to and engage with much of Greek philosophy that's shaping our world today. So in one sense, it's a city that is incredibly similar to ours, a hugely influential place. But actually, what Paul has to say is a really universal message to really all of humanity. It wouldn't matter if you were in London or New York or any global city anywhere in the world. This message um, is, is in many ways his uh, summary of, um, of who God is and of, of what it means to follow him. So in one sense, relevant wherever you're coming from. Um, it's really, we're, we're touching upon this whole idea of idolatry. And uh, I didn't prep Yorkabel, um, but she essentially already started to talk about that uh, topic. So we're going to kind of uh, dig deep into that. So if you want to pay, turn to page uh, 1623, I'm going to read from chapter 17, verse 16 to um, 30, 34. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, which is the kind of main Athenian assembly. He's at the very heart of Athens, speaking to their uh, leaders in many ways, uh, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's saying, let me tell you about that unknown God. So the Lord who made the world and everything in it, 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is not actually not far from each of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this, about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed. Among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you are uh, the Lord who Paul is speaking about here. You're the God who created the whole world and everything depends on your existence. Or our whole existence depends on you, Lord. We're so grateful for the reality of who you are. Would you help us to see who you are? Would you help us to turn away from idols? Help us to worship you, the only true and living God. Amen. Amen. So really, I realize there's a lot going on here, and Paul has said a lot, and we're not going to be able to deal with the nuances of everything that Paul said. In fact, some people will spend whole sermons just dealing with how Paul engages with their secular poets, but we're not going to do that tonight. Instead, I want to simmer down what Paul's saying and just get to the very heart, the thrust of Paul's message to Athens, and really what I think is Paul's message to us. And that's three things. One is that he says you're worshiping the wrong thing. Second of all, he says... Uh, your gods are too small. You're worshipping the wrong thing. Your gods are too small. So tear down your idols. So tear down your idols. So you're worshipping the wrong thing. You see, right off the back, if you want to understand what Paul's saying in this passage, you have to go right back to verse 16, which in many ways kind of frames the rest of the narrative that we hear. He says, now while Paul was waiting for the Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. What do we mean by idols? I suspect many of you are thinking of the kind of Athenian uh, temple system, you know, temple to Artemis or to Ares or, uh, you know, different Diana, all the different uh, Greek pantheon of gods. And he said, he's going around, he's saying, I can see that you are worshipping idols. In fact, at the beginning, verse 20, uh, beginning of his speech, he, in verse 22, he says, Men of Athens, I can see that you are, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This is not a compliment. Paul is, is uh, provoked and struck by their idolatry, by their worship of all these false gods. He's saying you're ignorant of who God is. That's why he goes on to then explain, I'm going to tell you the reality of who God is. He's really seeking to address their idolatry. But as we talk about idols and we think about the idols that, that, that Paul would have perceived in that moment, I suspect you're wondering, well, how is this relevant to us? 
because we don't follow a kind of Greek temple system. Maybe you're a Christian here. You say, well, I follow Christ, so this whole idea of idols is irrelevant to me. Or maybe you say, well, I'm not a Christian. I'm a, um, you know, the average secular Londoner would say, what, um, what possible relevance does it have for me? Because I don't worship anything. So this is, in a sense, just kind of, isn't this kind of uh, a backdated, old-fashioned kind of thing to worship idols? And we've kind of obviously moved beyond that. I want to suggest when you actually really get into the character of what idolatry is, what Paul is talking about here, you realize it's actually incredibly relevant to all of us. Because Paul is not primarily describing the religious rituals that these uh, Athenians are engaging with. What he's talking about is the heart and desire behind it. See, idolatry actually is really talking about our desires. In Ezekiel um, chapter 14, the prophet talks about it. He says, these men have set up idols in their hearts. The word heart in the Bible is always used to describe our desires. So he's saying, look, these men, they desire idols. Not talking about the same situation, but it's a, it's a kind of description that idolatry is about our desire, our, the things we value. It's not primarily about our rituals. And what I would argue is that even though our rituals have changed, even though we don't have uh, these kind of temples that these Athenians would have had, actually we have the same desires uh, in, in operation so think about uh, the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Uh, you might say, well, wh- why would someone go to the, to the temple of Aphrodite? Well, obviously, you'd go to seek, um, you'd give offerings, you'd, you'd kind of seek a priestly blessing there. Why? Because you want what she has. You want beauty. You'd go to the temple of Aphrodite because of what she represents, seeking what she has in her power, in your mind, to give to you. You're seeking beauty. Think about, in our culture, how much pe- there are some people who put a huge weight on a desire to be beautiful. To be, they would give thousands of pounds in different beauty treatments. Or they might even give their physical health. You know, people struggle with different eating disorders. Sometimes, at, really, at the root of it is a, a kind of desire, a, lo- a kind of longing to be beautiful, to be considered beautiful. In fact, they might go as far to say, as, I'll only be happy if I'm beautiful, um, you know, where they make beauty an essential for their happiness. And they, won't, they wouldn't say they're worshipping Aphrodite, but really when you start to make beauty that important that it becomes the ultimate good of your life, really you've made it an idol. You've made it into a mini-god. It becomes the driver of your life. And maybe you say beauty is not, that's not beauty for me, but think about Artemis, the god of financial wealth. Think how many people in our city will pursue that goal and will make it the ultimate goal of their lives. And the way you can see that is by the way they're willing to to, uh, sacrifice their physical health, sacrifice every hour they have sometimes in pursuit of financial success. Really, that, that, that desire for money, that desire for financial security and maybe what that brings, the status that affords, has become like a god in their lives. It's become the ultimate defining center of their lives. Even you might say we have this kind of a form of child sacrifice to our idols today in the way that some people will um, be so in pursuit of financial wealth that it might lead them to neglect their families, neglect their responsibilities to their children. In a way, they're really sacrificing their children before the idol of financial gain. So our worship places may have changed. We might worship very, it might look very differently, but actually the same desires exist in us. And really, this speaks of the character of what idolatry is. Really, idolatry is about making any one thing, any often very good thing, into the ultimate desire of your life. 
Because really where Paul is coming from here is saying, look, the only person, the only thing that should be in the place of ultimate, that should be the, the center of your life, the way, the, the, the kind of filter by which you decide what to do and how to live is the living God. That he has that rightful place as the, as the Lord of your life. But actually you've replaced that with a series of, of sometimes good things, but you've put them in the place of God. And that's why Paul is, is outraged by their idolatry. It's, but they're, they're, they're substitutes. They're putting substitutes in the place of the real living God. And I, I think this is just such a universal tendency. Think about um, success. That's something that many of us can make into an idol. What we mean by that is that success starts to become the driver of your life. It starts to be the thing that you most want to pursue, such that every decision in your life becomes, is seen through the lens of, will this make me successful? Will this enable me to advance my career? Will this enable me to achieve my goals? And suddenly, what thought was, well, there's nothing wrong with being successful in your career, actually can become deeply insidious as it starts to grip your heart and become the central priority of your life. And actually, I would argue that this kind of idolatry is a universal tendency. Paul, when he sees this city, sees a city which is submerged in idolatry. He says a city full of idols. But one translator said it's a picture almost like a a forest of idols. It's like everywhere he turns in Athens, he sees idols. What he's saying is actually this is not uh, particular to certain people. Actually, this is something that we all do. We all have a tendency to take something which is good and make it the ultimate Uh, David Foster Wallace in 2005 um, said this. Uh, It was a commencement address to uh, to an American college. Um, It's called This Is Water. You can look it up online. And I think there's some debate, but people are fairly convinced that David's not a Christian. Um, He said this. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah or Yahweh, is that pretty much everything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. But the insidious things about these forms of worship, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. What he's saying is that you can almost start doing this without even realizing it. That you can tell, you actually have to start working out, well, you almost have to look at your life and say, well, actually, what are my idols? You can't just kind of, you won't, it won't be immediately obvious to you that you're doing this. And the reason I think these idols are so universal, why we have this, such a universal tendency towards this, is because we are looking for these things to fulfill a universal human need. And that is a universal need to believe that we are valuable to believe that we have value, to believe that we have worth, to believe that our lives have meaning because we are all, whatever our worldview, um, deeply, I would argue, afraid, deeply afraid of the idea that our life is meaningless. Nobody, whatever your worldview, would f- can face the idea that life is meaningless. And so what it is, is we then use these idols to give us a sense of value and significance. 
Often we desire money, not because of what the money itself, but because of what it represents. That when we've achieved a certain financial status in life, maybe sometimes defined by a certain set of cultural norms, like, I don't know, buying a house, having a car, whatever. Um, I suppose that's probably not fair to say in London, as that is a sign of, uh, <laughs> that's kind of beyond most of us. But, but the, the, um, that we'll set these markers up, not just because of what, what we want the money, but because of what it represents. That it says, look, we've kind of made it in life. We've kind of reached a level where we can say our existence is valid. Just like Yorkabel mentioned, success. Sometimes we can look to kind of reach a certain standard of success because we then say, yeah, now my life is valid. I think another one of these is love. Sometimes some of us are pursuing love, pursuing relationships, not just because we want them, but because what they represent. Because behind that love relationship, it's that love relationship says to you, I, am, uh, I have worth, I have value. Because, you know, someone, uh, a song once said, you're nobody until somebody loves you. And some of us have believed that, basically, that relationships, that we want a relationship because of the value it confers to us. So I think the desire to be valuable is universal. And so we just have to ask, what are we looking for to answer that deep human longing in each of us? So you might say, well, okay, if it's unconscious, how do I even know that I'm doing this? How can I tell what my idols are? I think a series of a few questions to ask yourself. One, what are your nightmares? What, do you, what are you waking up in a cold sweat thinking about? Maybe you don't have nightmares, but what are the, what are the fears of your life? What are the things that you say subconsciously or consciously, if I don't have that, either in the future or maybe even now, my life is not worth living? If you're someone who idolizes the approval of others, you might constantly be asking yourself after you spent time with them, do they like me? You know, constantly, basically behind it, a fear that they don't approve of you. What do you do with your imagination? What do you daydream about? What do you, for want of a better word, fantasize about? What are you um, looking to in the future to give you comfort? That you think, oh, you know, in the future, yeah, that person, that, I'm looking, that person will be the ultimate answer to my deepest longings. Or that career, or, um, or that job, or, or that mission, or, that, or finding a job where I finally find my purpose. As I'm, I've got so many friends where they're looking for that job that answers their deep longings for a sense of purpose in life. What do you pray about if you're a Christian? What, uh, what do you seek God for uh, the most? <laughs> what are you asking for? Sometimes some of you will do, give ultimatums to God, where you say to God, if only I get this. And I've actually heard people say, if I don't get this, then I'm walking away. And what the problem is, is when you make that kind of ultimatum to God, really you're treating God like a genie in a lamp, saying, give me what I want um, and I'll follow you. And if you don't give me what I want, then I can't. That's not actually a relationship with God. That's just a, a kind of functional, um, kind of transactional relationship. And he can't be approached that way. The final, final question, how do you spend your money? Uh, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. There your heart will also be. Saying, what do you spend your money on? What do you find no difficulty spending money on? That actually every month you have to kind of go, okay, I've, I've spent too much on, on this or that. Actually, it's a, probably a good sign that that has got your heart. And sometimes you might just spend money on, on status symbols. Not You're spending money for, the th- for what that thing represents. That if you have those status symbols, then people will, will kind of, then you'll confer that status on you. 
Actually, so I think if we look inside ourselves, we start to ask ourselves these, these maybe slightly uncomfortable questions, that we can start to see that, yeah, there are things that we have potentially, if you're a Christian, put in the place of God, or actually, if you're not a Christian, just say, yeah, these are things that matter most to me. These are your idols. But just one thing we've got to hear in what Paul's saying here. Paul is not just benignly observing these idols in our lives and saying, look, you can see what really matters to you. Actually, Paul is deeply offended by the idolatry in Athens. The word he uses is provoked in verse 16, but it doesn't really capture Paul's reaction to the idolatry that he's seen. Actually, the word that he, in Greek, could be kind of, um, is where we get the English word paroxysm from. And the paroxysm is kind of a violent, angry outburst. And it's not that Paul is like losing his temper Paul is that, it's kind of, uh, the way it's declined is, is actually more like a kind of slow sense of just as he walks around Athens, as he observes these idols, he's just feeling more and more like there's something deeply wrong here. It's like his blood is starting to boil. And he's just saying, there's, there's something wrong here. We need to address this. This is your biggest problem. This is, him saying, this is his message to Athens saying, you are desiring and worshipping the wrong things. Paul is not just kind of happy for them to sit in their idolatry, saying this is the thing you've got to sort out. And what you've got to hear is that actually really Paul is, 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 is um, channeling something of God's outrage idolatry. That same anger is actually not something that Paul is just, not like Paul's just got a bad temper. Actually, Paul is experiencing the, and reflecting something of what, how God responds to idolatry all throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 32, says, he's talking about the idolatry of the people of Israel. It says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abom- abominations, they provoked him to anger. You know, I say, well, what, what do you mean by this anger? Well, I think the key to understanding this anger is the word jealousy. The jealousy that God has for his people. What he's saying is that imagine you are in a relationship with someone and uh, you're, you're happy, having a good time, your boyfriend, girlfriend for a number of months, and then someone else comes along and, uh, and tries to take them away from you. Perhaps they, your, your girlfriend or boyfriend starts to be drawn away from you. Now, if you really love that person, you'd be deeply jealous. I can see one, at least one husband starting to you know, feel that jealousy as he hears that story. There's, there's a sense to which if you really love the person you're with and someone else tries to get in the way of that relationship, you are going to be experiencing jealousy. That's a normal human reaction. It's not just normal, it's actually good. If you were dating someone and you didn't feel jealousy when someone else came along, I'd probably suggest that maybe you shouldn't be dating them. Like There's, there's probably something wrong there that you're not feeling jealousy. So when Paul, and actually when God experiences that jealousy, that anger at this idolatry, what he's saying is, you've got to hear the love behind his, his jealousy here. That he is deeply concerned that the people who are made for him, who are made to be in relationship with him, think of it like a marriage, you're made for the one who loves you, who, who is like a husband pursuing an unfaithful spouse. You're made for him, and yet you're, essentially what you're doing when you build these idols is you're like an unfaithful spouse. You're, 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 you're being drawn away from the one who loves you, who made you, who, who wants to be in relationship with you for all eternity. So Paul is offended by this idolatry. But then we have to ask, well, okay, if we see this offense, how do we respond? How do we, if we kind of, you know, maybe you're like, yes, okay, I can see it. I've got loads of things I desire that aren't God. I can see I put some of those things as the ultimate driver of my life. And yet I know that I'm called to love God, to make him the ultimate. How do I answer that problem? Well, I think we have to look at what Paul has to say to the Athenians. And really his answer there is, your gods are too small. 
your gods are too small. What is the remedy to idolatry? It's seeing that your idols are tiny, seeing that your idols are not worthy of worship and seeing just how much greater, how much more worthy that God is of our worship. He's saying, don't be silly. Don't worship these idols when you have the chance to worship the living God. You see this, this pattern in what he says to them. In verse 24, he says, you, he's basically saying, you worship God, your gods in temples, but actually the living God, and this is what he says, he contrasts it, um, he says to them in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's cha- com- contrasting the true God with the God who these guys are worshipping. Verse 25, he says, you, you, the gods you worship need to be served with the offerings and sacrifices. We worship a God who doesn't need to be served. You worship tribal deities. Doesn't actually use those phrases, but that's the reality of the pantheon that they that they would as a, as a nation was conquered into the Greek or Roman empires. What would happen is their god would be incorporated, and each different nation would kind of have their own god. He's saying no, you've got it all wrong. Actually, the the living God stands above all other gods and is the only one worthy of worship. Paul is is really insulting their idols, saying, "Look, they're ridiculous. Don't worship them. Come and worship the true and living God." So I think we need to do the same exercise. Look at our idols. And when you actually, when you peer into it, you'll see that our idols are not worthy of worship. What do I mean by that? I say the idols will never satisfy, that only Jesus Christ will satisfy you in the way that you're longing for. The very idols that you set up will never satisfy you. Let me give you a few examples. If, if your idol is approval, if you're longing for the approval of other people, if that's the central desire of your life, you will never feel um, like people really approve of you and like you. You'll never, sorry, you'll always be worrying about whether you measure up to other people's expectations. If your idol is success, you'll constantly be on this kind of treadmill of, conti- of performance and achievement. Maybe you'll achieve the success that you desire, albeit briefly, but then after a while, the glory will fade and you'll think, what's next? What next do I need to achieve? I, I had this experience for me growing up. Success, like Yorkabel, success was my idol, was the thing that I pursued most of all. And I was at university and I was running a business with, my, uh, with a friend of mine, really, again, out of that desire to build this perfect CV and to be as successful as possible. And I had a conversation with him. I said to him, isn't it great that we're doing an intern, we're doing, we're doing this uh, this." this startup uh, so that we can get our, look good on our CVs, we can get our first internships, and then we're kind of sorted. And he said, oh no, we're going to do this, to work hard at this, then we'll get our first internship, and then you've got to work hard at that and you to get, to get the job, then you've got to work hard at that to get promoted, and work hard at that and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep working up the ladder. And I said, Chris, where does it end? And he said, oh, well, we'll get, reach our mid-40s, we have a midlife crisis, we, we uh, divorce our wives, marry a younger model and buy a fancy car. And I just thought, that is so depressing. And that was one of the conversations that started my journey towards following Christ. Um, because I just thought that can't be what life is about. It can't be enough that, that, that that's what you're pursuing. That's the central driver of your life. Madonna, um, in a book, um, I don't know, in a magazine somewhere, uh, described a similar... I'm not saying I'm very similar to Madonna in many ways. Uh, <laughs> but she, um, she described a similar experience. She said, I have an iron will and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being and then get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, you know, I experience the glory for a moment and then it comes crashing down. 
My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, and that's always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended, and it, prob- and it probably never will. Or think about uh, J.D. Rockefeller, at one point one of the, rich- the richest men- man in the world, an oil baron, who was asked, how much money is enough? And gave those fateful words, just one more dollar. The point is our idols will never satisfy us. They keep us in a kind of a hamster wheel, just keep pursuing, like on a treadmill. You're running and running, but you're never reaching your destination. There's a sense to which the, the thing we're longing for, that lasting satisfaction is never found. So we just have to keep bowing down to our idols. Or think about... Um, like when you're drinking water, you, get thir- you, you quench your thirst for a moment, but a few hours later, you're thirsty. And even if you achieve those dreams, even if you achieve the very thing that you think will give you the happiness that you desire, actually you realize that that doesn't even satisfy you. And suddenly you're like, where am I? What do I do? Now the thing I thought would make me happy has left me deeply unsatisfied. And that was, that was actually what led me to look into following Christ. So I think, there's, I think actually when we look around London, we see something of a gnawing sense of dissatisfaction, a sense in so many people that our, our idols, are the things that we're pursuing, haven't given us the meaning and value and purpose that we're looking for. You can feel it in the air that we breathe. Um, Francis Schaeffer put it like this in 1974, but it's unbelievable it's, this quote is so old because I think it could describe 2019 perfectly. He said, people today are afraid to be alone. This fear is a dominant mark of our society. Many now ceaselessly sit in the cinema or read novels or watch dramas or consume hours of Netflix. I'm just bringing it up to date for you. Um, Why? To simply avoid facing their own existence. No one seems to want a place for quiet because when you are quiet, you have to face reality. But many in this present generation dare not do this because their own basis of reality leads them to meaninglessness. So there's a gnawing sense that our idols haven't delivered, whether we're willing to admit it or not. What you've got to understand is that we're not saying that Christianity is somehow anti-satisfaction, that this desire for value and significance and purpose and meaning isn't inherent in every human being. What we're claiming is that we are looking in the wrong place. It's like you've been given the keys to an incredible mansion, but you're, instead you just keep going around and trying to find, you find like grimy, rubbish places to live, and you're staying there for a while, and then you're moving on to the next grimy and rubbish place. And all the time, there are, you have keys to this incredible place to live. You see, you've got to understand these idols are substitutes. They are like pale imitations of the real thing. You think about that metallic statue. It's a picture of the living God behind it. A, a, maybe a, a, a very wrong picture, but there's a glimpse of the reality. What he's saying is that you, you might have had a, a glimpse of true and lasting satisfaction, but it's only a glimpse. It points to the fact that there is only one who will truly satisfy that longing in your heart for, to, for meaning and value. Let me give you a few examples. One is the search for love. Many of us are, are trying to find that one person to satisfy us, to tell us, to validate our existence and to tell us that we are loved. But I would argue that the gospel speaks louder and more clearly and more powerfully to that longing for love than any human being ever could. Because it says it's not a love that is dependent on what you do or on the performance you have or the relate the kind of spouse that you are. It's a love that is permanent, a love that is lasting, a love that will last forever, that won't come or won't um, 
disappear suddenly as your spouse loses interest in you and walks away. It's a love that is profoundly, um, for whatever better word, loving. <laughs> it's a love that is, is, is not um, you know, interested in oneself and seeking validation for, uh, for our own needs, as often our spouses do. Actually, it's a love that, that is willing to lay down his life for you. It's a love that can be surely counted upon and ultimately is, is guaranteed by Christ's death on the cross. There's no doubting his love because he has a tangible, visible reminder of his love. You can look to any time you're doubting his love for you. I'm convinced that the gospel speaks louder and more clearly to our desire and longing for love. Not saying that we don't need people, not saying that human relationships aren't a wonderful thing. And in fact, we have been given these wonderful human relationships in the church and in friendships and all sorts of other ways. But there's a deep, that deep longing, I would argue, can only truly be met by the one who is willing to give his life for you. Or approval. Many of us are seeking approval, seeking to have others think well of us. Actually, the, the ultimate antidote, I'm absolutely convinced, is knowing the approval of your Father in heaven. See, behind my desire for success when I was growing up was actually really so that my parents would think well of me and other people would think well of me. It was a desire for approval. And yet when I met the living God, when I just started to pray in my room on my own, I started to experience the love of my heavenly Father. I started to experience an approval that was, again, surer, more solid, more uh, certain than any approval from another person. You might get someone's approval for a day, but you'll be looking for it tomorrow. You'll be asking, Who, do, you still, do you still like me? Do you still think I'm good at my job? Do you still All those kind of questions. But this is an approval that comes with a kind of stamp, a guarantee, and a permanence that cannot be taken away. Because when the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. And when he sees Jesus, he loves him. And so he has that same love for you as he has for his son, that they've existed for all eternity. What we're really saying here is that idols are substitutes, but they're just like a pale imitation, like fool's gold, that when you scratch it, you see that it's not really gold. So idols wear out. Christ lives forever. Think about the way that some of our, the things that we worship, they won't last forever. You know, I'm, I hate to tell you, if you're pursuing glory, if, you, if fame and glory is your goal, in a hundred years, most people will have, have no idea that you ever existed. It's high, almost no one will give a second thought to you in a hundred years. That's almost certainly the case. I know you're, some of you are hoping to be the exception to that uh, rule, but I bre- hate to break it to you. It's probably the case. And yet there is a, a lasting satisfaction that comes in his approval of you that will never, never fade. And he is the king who reigns forever. He talks about the resurrection at the end of this passage. He's saying there is one who will reign forever and who, who has welcomed you into his family, has given you the gift of this love, this value, this significance, which is truly permanent and lasting. And what really what you've got to look at then is just step back a second and see the ridiculousness of worshipping these idols. Like, just imagine the image for a moment. They're they're in the temple worshipping some kind of metal statue. And Paul's like, no, you've got it all wrong. Step back and see the bigger picture. That behind this metal statue is the living God who created everything. That's the ridiculousness of idol worship. You're worshipping something that is so trivial when actually you could be worshipping the living God. Your idols pretend to have power, but actually they only have the power that you give them. Actually, this is the only one who truly has the power, who created the universe. And I think as a Christian, this should change the way you see the city. Some of you feel um, like 
second-class citizens in this city. Maybe you feel a bit like you're outside the norm, you don't really fit in, you're a Christian, you have different worldview, different moral values to the people around you. And so you kind of end up feeling um, second-class and a bit rubbish. Actually, this should mean that this should say that the difference that we have, yes, we are aliens, yes, we are in some way different, we're marching to a different drumbeat, but it's because we've experienced and had our eyes open to the living God that we've seen the reality of what life's about, that we worship the, the, the true center of the universe. And here we are in a city where everyone else is bowing down to idols. They're still worshiping these metal objects to all the different desires they have. You're in a position, forgive me, but almost of superiority. Not that you're better than them, but you've been given this privilege. Your eyes have been opened. So when we engage in the world, it should give us two things. It should give us a compassion should give us a love for the people around us for saying, look, when, when everyone else is chasing something else, it shouldn't be like, a, oh, I need to fit in. I need to start doing the same as everyone else, as is so often the case. Actually, no, I, I, I see that. I see that you're worshiping the wrong thing, and I, and I have a compassion for you. It should also give us a healthy jealousy for the honor and the, and the fame of the living God, that actually we should, we should want him to be worshipped in this city. And that should drive us to say, like Paul, this faith belongs in the public square. Paul's in the agora, in uh, agora, the, the, the public marketplace. He's not keeping his faith to himself. He's saying, no, this, I have to tell you, I have to confront the idols. I have to show you that you're worshipping the wrong things. And that actually, I want to introduce you to the living God, the one who you are made to worship. But really, the main response I want to call you to is to tear down your idols. Paul, at the end of his, his uh, speech to the Agora, uh, to the, sorry, the Areopagus, um, says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now he commands all people everywhere to repent. It's a ch- it's a, he's, he's calling them to, to, put, to tear down their idols. You know, there's a picture in the Old Testament of how the people of Israel erect uh, poles, uh, and it sounds weird, but like different uh, symbols of idolatry. And Paul says, no, you've got you to take down these poles. You've got to take down these false idols. If you're a Christian, that means you've got to come and worship the living God. That's what he's calling the Athenians to. But actually, I think this speaks to the reality of what it means to be a Christian. See, the Christian life, unfortunately, and I'm sure many of you know the reality of this, your idol worship doesn't stop when you declare an allegiance and a, true, and a desire to follow him. Actually, the Christian life is a war of desires. What I mean by that is it's a constant battle to seek to destroy and kill the wrong desires and to, put, and to keep Christ in the place of ultimate Lord of your life. That means that we, we want to be people who look different, who, who enjoy the good gifts of the world, who enjoy the, the good gifts that our Father gives us, enjoy our careers, who, 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 who find meaning and purpose in our jobs. Who, I'm not suggesting that we don't enjoy the gifts, we don't enjoy relationships, love, all these things. But we, do, we enjoy them in a different way, in two ways. One, we enjoy them with a, with a healthy sense of um, freedom. What I mean by that is you, can, you know that you can lose them and you can survive. I, this, just this week, I was speaking to someone um, who had unfortunately, and not through anything they'd done, who lost their job. Who, um, the, the company didn't have enough work and so they made a, a few people redundant. And uh, this person's a Christian, but what I was just struck by was, ju- you know, it was a few days afterwards, and you'd expect them to be reeling from it, to be crushed from it, but actually that was the opposite of their reaction. Actually, they were really willing to say, okay, I'm, that's fine, that's over, I'm looking forward to the next thing, I'm starting to discern God's will and say, what's, what's next? Do you want to keep me in London? you want me to go somewhere else? And I just was struck and so marveled at the freedom and the joy that this person had, despite the fact that they'd lost their job. 
Many people I know wouldn't have that sense of freedom, wouldn't be kind of so able to lose something that many of us would consider deeply precious to us. And I think the reason that that person was able to do that is because they don't worship their job, because they worship the living God. And I, I was thought it was just really beautiful. Or, you know, um, material possessions. You can enjoy them. You can enjoy the good gifts that you have, but you receive them with a thanksgiving. Because the, you know, think what idolatry is. Idolatry is uh, choosing to value the gift above the giver. So the greatest antidote to your idolatry is a, is a receipt of these things, an enjoyment of these things, but with an attitude of thankfulness to remember where they come from. Uh, I think it was uh, Calvin, one of the uh, a French theologian uh, from the Reformation, who said, in despising the gifts, we insult the giver. Christianity is not an asceticism, not a kind of withdrawal from the world and a kind of denial of the good gifts that God gives us. Actually, that's in some ways sometimes a subtle lie of Satan. What I mean by that is he will seek to tell you, seek to show you, oh, you know, your father doesn't really care for you. He doesn't give you good gifts, doesn't love you. Right in Genesis 3, uh, the snake says to Eve, says, um, didn't the father basically tell you not to eat any of the tree, from any of the trees? Now, that's a distortion. He said, don't eat from one tree. But he's saying, no, didn't the father tell you not to eat from any tree? Why? Because he's, he's almost emphasizing, trying to show, trying to make the Eve believe that look, the father doesn't really care for you. He doesn't have any good gifts for you. And that's so often the case that sometimes as Christians, we can kind of fall into this kind of bitterness or, or kind of despondency where we just feel like God has nothing good for us, that he doesn't love us, doesn't care for us. That's completely the opposite of what we're saying here. Actually, we're called to enjoy the good gifts that we have, to enjoy that with thanksgiving, to remember every good gift comes from our Heavenly Father. So we enjoy these gifts with thanksgiving. We, we have a different approach to the, to, to, the, to the things of this world. We're able to enjoy it with a freedom. We're also willing to challenge your idols. I think if you're a Christian, sometimes you need to tear down the idols, tear down the things that you might be worshipping. And what do I mean by that? It means sometimes you have to talk to yourself. Talk to, the, talk to those desires that you have in you. So say you're someone who idolizes marriage. Desiring marriage, not a bad thing. It's a great thing. No, by all means, it's something to... to to want to make every step towards achieving, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I said, make it sound like a business plan, sorry. Um, <laughs> um, my, my point is, not, not a bad thing, but, but if you idolize marriage, if you say, this ma- if, I'm, if only if I'm married will my life have any meaning, if only if I'm married will I have, be satisfied, if that's your problem, if that's your idolatry, then you need to challenge that idol in yourself. You need to look at that really and kind of see it, not for this looming God that you might worship, but actually see it for what it is, that it's a good gift, that yes, it's a, it's a, 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 a great thing, but it doesn't, it's not necessary for a flourishing and, and satisfying life. That actually, if you get, that you don't need to be married to be happy, that marriage is not some sort of magic wand that you wave, that suddenly you just experience happiness. You're still the same person that you were. You're still struggling with the same desires and problems that you always had. You, um, you know, people talk about loneliness in marriage. There's all sorts of reasons why marriage is not the panacea, not the answer to all your problems that you might think it to be. And sometimes you need to tell yourself that. Sometimes there will be even moments in your life which feel like Abraham and Isaac moments, where the very thing that you value the most, your God is calling you to put it on the altar, 
to put it before him. So Abraham has been given the gift of his son, Isaac, and it's, it's, he's, the, he's the greatest hope. He's the f- hope for the future. He's the, he's, the, he's the means by which God will fulfill his promises to Abraham. And yet God tells Abraham to go and put his son on the altar, to literally to sacrifice his son. Now, Abraham, I would argue, knows that he doesn't have to do that. He's not, that's not how it's going to end, or at least he's not sure, because he says, we will return. But nonetheless, he takes his son up and puts him on the altar. He's willing to, to, to sacrifice the very greatest gift that God has given him. Now, if you know the story, you know that God provides a lamb in his place. That it doesn't end like the way, he, the way, way it might, you might think it ends. But the point is, there will be times in your life that God calls you to put on the altar the thing that you think will make you most satisfied. He doesn't give you that thing that you desire. And you can do two things at that point. You can either run away from God. You can say, like a, forgive me, like a petulant child. Sorry, let's use that language. But like a, a, a kind of, you know, just say, you know what, God? I'm just not going to play with you if you're not going to provide me the toy that I want. Or you can say, actually, no, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you are good that you are who you say you are, that you're the living God who, were, who created all humanity and I can trust you that you know what I need and that you will keep me, that you, that you will satisfy me more than anything else. It's at that moment that, that, that whether you trust God will really be shown. So sometimes God will call you to lay things down. Sometimes you need to challenge your idols. But really, probably the way I would end this is you need to reorientate your vision of God. You see, the problem is sometimes we fight this by trying to say the things that we might value are not important. But I would argue that, that when you really see God's goodness, when you celebrate the gospel, when you, in, when you see his love as your heavenly father, that is when your idols will really fade or really fall. Is when you know, when you know as you know as you know, the goodness and love of your heavenly father. When you see his goodness, then you'll realize that your idols don't love you. Your idols don't care for you. Your idols will keep you in a hamster wheel, but you have a heavenly father who loves you. And the reason why I say this is because I think it's a calling to kind of reorientate your attention on God. Someone said, I uh, heard recently, attention is the beginning of adoration. Attention is the beginning of adoration. We live in a distracted world. We live in a world with all sorts of different alerts and impulses and, and uh, impulses is the wrong word, but different things that come to us and distract us from the reality of who the living God is. And sometimes what I'm arguing is as you go around the marketplace, as you see all these people bowing down to different idols, you need to have your attention on the living God who kind of stands behind in the the backdrop, but in an all-encompassing way and say, actually, no, there's something, there's a bigger reality here that sits above the idols that everyone else is worshipping. And that is the living God. And you need to reorientate your attention on him. And I would make one further point on this, which is, when you're looking to, to God, when you're seeing his goodness, what you're really asking is, is my heart changing? What I mean by this is you'll go through spirit, spiritual disciplines. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about engaging with the word of God. You need to be asking yourself when you're doing that, is my heart changing? Do I recognize your goodness? Do I love you? Do you love God? That is the central question that matters every day of your life. Do you really feel a warmth and an affection for God? Because if you do... If you see his goodness to you and you feel a warmth and affection and a desire for him, that is the antidote to the idols as you pass by them every day. You're walking in the marketplace and there's an idol there, something that, people, that your heart might be drawn to. The only way you will stop your heart being drawn to that is by the, the full confidence of God's goodness and his love for you. So as we close then, I want to say two things. If you're not a Christian here, 
you need to hear the, the call to lay down your idols. But if you're not a Christian, I want to suggest to you one thing. It's not just that Christians think that, that, that God is the only true and living God, the only one who deserves your worship. That's absolutely true. Paul is saying loudly and clearly, don't worship these other things. Worship the one who made you, who, who is above everything, who has the only power, real power in the universe. But it's not just that. He's saying, making a claim here that he is also the most satisfying reality. So if you're not a Christian, you need to hear that we are making a claim as Christians that there is nothing more satisfying than a relationship with the living God. And we are, our lives are a testimony to that fact. Come and talk to us. Come and see that. If you're exploring Christianity, come and probe that and see, is it true that God is really, that his love is better than life? That's what one of the psalmists says. That's if you're, if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, I want to just encourage you um, to consider if there are idols in your heart. To consider that whether or not there are things that you have placed your ultimate worth and significance in, to consider whether there are things which you are worshipping in your day-to-day life, that what, what, what York Bell really helpfully called functional saviours, functional gods in your life. And, of course, we're going to keep battling those, but this is a moment for you to be able to put those before the living God, to turn idols into instruments of worship, to turn idols into instruments of worship, What I mean by this is, tomorrow, when you go to work, some of you will be surrounded by people whose work is an idol. Work is what they worship. But you have an opportunity to do the exact opposite, to use your work to worship the living God, to use your gifts to say, God, I'm so grateful for the gifts you've given me. Will I work for your glory? As I type on my keyboard or whatever else you do, I can do this work to worship you because you have given me these gifts. So as everyone else is bowing down to the idols around you, you are worshiping the living God. You're doing the same thing, but from a radically different motivation. And this is a moment this evening now to turn to God and say, yeah, there are idols. I want to lay them on the altar. I want to worship you. But I want to, as we close, oh yeah, sorry. I want to remind you of that vow. You know, you've heard the, the, some of you have been to an Anglican wedding and they say uh, in the vow it says, forsaking all others as part of the vows towards your spouse. I want to remind you that this is what we are as Christians. We've forsaken all others. We have one living God who we say satisfies us completely. Why don't the band come up? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. The ultimate antidote to our idolatry is to remember the reality of who God is. That the ultimate idol smasher is Christ. When you see him, your idols fade. There's only one who won't destroy us, who doesn't lead us to destroy us, but leads us because he loves us. There's only one who won't manipulate us, but will lovingly lead us. Who actually loves us so much that he was willing, was willing to die for us. There's only one who is actually worthy of our worship. That everything was created through him and our existence depends on him. As we come into a time of worship, I want just to spend a moment just drinking in the goodness of God. Just reminding ourselves of the goodness of God. We're going to sing, good, good father. I want you just to stay seated for, as, we, as the band start to sing this. And just to reflect on God's goodness. To reflect on, the, on his kindness to you. And we're going to take communion. That's an opportunity to remember God's goodness, to remember his body and blood, body given for us, blood shed for us. Let me pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your love for us. 
We're so grateful that you are our idol smasher. That you're so much better than anything else we might worship. That you're worthy of all worship. That you created the heavens and the earth. That everything exists. Everything depends on you. You're the only one who really satisfies our souls. You're the answer to every longing inside us. Help us to see that. Help us to worship you. Help us to tear down the idols and to remember your goodness to us. Amen. Amen.